0: Hello and welcome to another bonus installment of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. This episode we're looking at our second Dungeons & Dragons endless quest book from back in the day, Spell of the Winter Wizard by Linda Lowry, with illustrations by Geoffrey R. Boosh and a rather neat cover illustration of a wizard riding a dragon by Larry Elmore one of the legends of the glory days of TSR, whose work arguably did more than almost anyone else to define the look of Dungeons & Dragons. It's his iconic cover of basic Dungeons & Dragons that I absolutely butchered on the cover of my own homage to D&D, Dungeon & Daggers. He's a bona fide legend in the genre, and while this cover feels more like an illustration than his detailed and painterly cover art for D&D, Nonetheless, it looks very nice. But before we get into the book, there's a little bit of housekeeping to attend to. Firstly, I need to thank a new patron, Ron Paul Kirkley, for his generous support over at www.patreon.com forward slash HJ Doom. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of people like Ron, so thank you very much to uh, Ron and all my patrons for keeping the lights on and the bonus episodes coming. Secondly, and relatedly, I can now announce that I've finished the actual writing part of my new game book. Now there's just the editing and so forth to get through before it can be sent out to my patrons. I'm pretty happy with how it turned out, and I'll be busy editing over the Christmas period to make sure it can be in the hands of my patrons either just before or just after the new year. It's my longest game book to date, currently weighing in at 428 sections and 60,000 words, so I'm hoping the weight will be worth it. Right, let's get down to business. Hopefully the Endless Quest books don't need much in the way of introduction by this point, but a very basic primer is that they are a series of 47 choose-your-own-adventure-style books released between 1985 and 1995 beginning at almost the same point as our beloved fighting fantasy series, but ultimately much less ambitious in scope. Most of them are set in one or other of Dungeons & Dragons' many settings, but there are a few exceptions. Spell of the Winter Wizard was book number 11, released in 1983, and was one of two books Linda Lowry wrote for TSR, the second being part of the Hard Quest spin-off line, which was intended to appeal to a female demographic, By incorporating romance themes. I'm sure we will take a look at the Heart Quest series and romance themed game books more generally at some point. Obviously, I'm the last person who should be reviewing a series of books aimed at teenage girls, but since when was that a barrier for a middle-aged white guy with a podcast? There's no system to deal with with the Endless Quest books, as they're rather more old school, as well as being aimed at potentially a slightly younger audience than the Fighting Fantasy series. So we'll just be reading it and then trying to work out if it's any good. This book was suggested to me by listener Daniel Sauer, and he thought it might make a particularly good holiday read since it's got a wintery theme. I completely concur, and so I present to you Spell of the Winter Wizard. Let's get into it. There so we have a very short introduction to the concept of game books and an even shorter introduction to the adventure we're about to embark on, uh, which goes In this book you are Omina, stepchild of Alcazar, the wizard of eternal spring. You are out gathering herbs to use in soup for your ailing stepfather when your peaceful evening is interrupted by warlike shouts and the thundering of many hooves. It has to be said, is one of the most efficient introductions I think we've had so far. Stifling a scream of panic, you race across the fields towards home. The night is wild with the screeches of War's End's boars. The cries echo through the countryside, and the thunder of hoofs grows louder and louder. I should never have left Alcazar alone, you think, not even while I picked the herbs for his soup. You fling the handful of herbs on a bench and shout to your cat. Hurry, Cornelius, we must get to Alcazar before Warzen's army reaches him. As you round the corner to the back of the cottage, your heart sinks. Orcs are pounding on the front door. You know you must hide quickly, so you burrow into the woodpile by the door, your eyes searching for the cat. Cornelius Sylvan, you hiss but he is gone. Suddenly you hear a loud boom followed by the sounds of the front door splintering, windows shattering, the army storming into your cottage. Poor Alcazar, you think, but your thoughts freeze when you hear Warzen's voice bellow above the commotion. Silence, he roars, and the noise stops instantly. Well, 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 isn't this a sight to behold? The great wizard of eternal spring lying in his bed powerless before me. The winter wizard's cruel laughter sends shivers up your spine. You crawl in deeper among the logs. There is a picture of War's End, the wizard of winter, on his boar. And it's kind of a game of two halves. I really like the boar. It's got its legs splayed in a uh, very sort of aggressive muscular stance. And uh, yeah, it looks really fierce, really uh, ready for action. Just a really nice bore. The wizard, on the other hand, I'm not so keen on. He's fine. He's got some particularly mad hair and a very over the top moustache. But otherwise, it just feels a little bit basic. Uh, but still perfectly adequate art, and um, even though both figures, the wizard and the boar, are standing still, I guess the wizard is sitting on the boar, there's a sense of dynamism to it, which I think is really good. In your mind you picture Warzen's ugly face, his black eyes glaring through narrow slits, his tangled beard packed thick with ice, his bared teeth as jagged as icicles. "'Where are your powers and your loyal followers now, Alcazar?' sneers Warzen. "'I don't see anyone rushing forth to protect him.' "'What should we do with him, Warzen?' asks a gruff voice. "'Should we give him a few jabs with our pig stickers Snorts and snuffles of rude laughter burst from the onlooking army. "'No, muttonhead,' growls Warzen. "'I want the pleasure of seeing him suffer.' We'll put him in the ice cavern in my castle dungeon and watch him slowly freeze. You hear that, Scrugg? The ice cavern, gloats an orc. He can hang next to the disobedient boar with the teeth as sharp as knife blades. It ought to be pretty hangry by now, howls another. Quiet, booms Warzen. Boar keepers. Get out your ropes and take him away, and see that you keep him alive on the journey north. There is a loud shuffling of feet, and you picture the horrible creatures tearing Alcazar from his bed and roughly binding his frail frame. It is all you can do to keep from leaping forth to defend him. Only Alcazar's earlier words of warning hold you back. They are an army, and you are but one if anything happens you must protect yourself you are dearer to me than my own life And now the kingdom is ours shouts warzen as the orcs cheer in triumph not for long you vow silently not for long let the frigid winds blow. Let the wintry snows descend upon the land. Let all that is green and living turn to cold and darkness. The icy frost of winter shall reign for ever. Booms, warzen, and the evil army thunders off, howling their victory cheer to the night. A frigid wind roars across the woodpile, driving snow deep into the cracks of your hiding place. You shiver. Violently, and begin to inch your way out from under the logs, listening for any boar keepers Wazin may have left behind. Hearing nothing, you creep into the cottage and cover your trembling body with heavy blankets. You try to rest, but your heart pounds madly, and sleep won't come. There are many decisions to make before dawn. Somehow, you must rescue your stepfather and restore him to health. You recall what Alcazar told you earlier about the Crimson Flame Mushroom that grows in the Forbidden Forest? It is the only cure for my illness, he said. The druids can help you find it, but the forest teems with dangerous creatures and you must be very careful. Will you be able to find the druids? Will they help you find the Crimson Flame Mushroom? Can you get it to Alcazar before it is too late?' Maybe you should try and rescue him first and search for the Druids later, but then again. As dawn reveals the horizon, you have narrowed your choices down to two. You can try to destroy Warzen first, then save Alcazar. Or you can seek out the Druids, find the Crimson Flame Mushroom and take it to Alcazar. So, obviously Pinch pitched at quite a young age, but I genuinely enjoyed that introduction. Nice, clear, straightforward writing style. Never a problem working out what's going on. Sets up the stakes really quickly and efficiently. Yeah, that is fine. I, however, am going to seek out the Druids first because I feel as though with the Flame Mushroom, the Crimson Flame Mushroom, I should say, which does have uh, every word capitalised, I feel as though Keep wanting to call him Alakazam. Um, I think Alcazar will be more than a match for Warzen. You pull on your warmest clothes, tall leather boots too, wool sweaters, and your heavy white cloak with the hood. You know you will need weapons for the journey, so you pick up a sturdy iron poker from the hearth. Let's see, you think, I could use some magical protection as well. What can I take? Your stepfather kept a golden whistle for emergencies hidden behind a loose stone in the fireplace. The magic in the whistle will work just once, so use it wisely, he said. You take the magic whistle from its hiding place and drop it into your pocket. Then, armed with the poker and the whistle, you head out towards the forbidden forest to find the druids. Your heart sinks when you see that Warzen's spell has killed all the daffodils and tulips the fields are deep in snow, and your legs are tired from trudging by the time you see the woods ahead. The bare trees at the forest's edge cast long shadows across the snow, and even with the leaves gone, you see that these woods are thick and dark, with barely a snatch of grey sky showing through. You are hoping for a sign or two, druids to the right, or information seven trees ahead. But this is no civilised forest all you see are tree trunks with deep cold blackness lurking behind them. All you hear is the squeak of your own footsteps on the frozen snowy ground. I feel as though there's a slight dig there at the um, somewhat artificial encounters that do tend to crop up in interactive fiction of various sorts, with the uh, detail that there definitely aren't any signs giving you useful information. Maybe I'm hypersensitive to it because i've been playing around with uh, the boundary between artifice and reality for months as i've been writing my own game book you are not even a mile into the woods when you hear mumbling and you stop dead in your tracks to listen excellent peacock specimen creaks a voice from the darkness my finest butterfly yet into the glass jar with you you inch towards the sound, and soon you see a thatched roof held up by sawed off tree trunks, all hung with icy mosquito netting. Inside sits a mousy little man in a safari hat, with a blanket thrown over his shoulders. He holds a blue spotted butterfly in his hands. There is a wooden sign dangling over his desk Professor Erasmus Quince, Lepidopterist. Lepidopterist is a really nice word to say. I feel as though I should try and come up with um, reasons to uh, use the word lepidopterist in my daily life. There is a picture of Professor Erasmus Quint, lepidopterist and the lepidopterist in question is kind of rubbish I have to say. His proportions are all right and I like the way he's been drawn slightly hunched over as if he's someone who spends a lot of time at a desk Poring over books and specimens, but there's just something very amateurish about his face, a quality of a sort of child's drawing rather than a professional illustrator. Despite the fact that the guy's clearly got some skill in terms of getting people right, it somehow still manages to come across quite poorly executed, and the less said about the butterfly itself, the better. Excuse me, sir. You begin, pulling back the net door now stiff with frost. I wonder if you could just tell me... Just a moment, just a moment. He drops the butterfly into a jar and clamps on the lid. Did anyone ever tell you you're rather rude? He asks, glaring at you through glasses so thick that they make his eyes look like blurry brown bugs. I was just... Wait, wait, hush up. He looks for a place to set down his jar, but the desk is cluttered with dusty books and maps and butterflies, so he shoves the jar into more clutter on a wooden shelf. Then he leans back on his stool and studies you from top to toe. "'An interesting specimen, I see. What are you? Elf? Halfling? Human, sir. I'm I'm human, just like you.' You answer, a bit annoyed. "'Can't you tell? Quite, quite.' He says, wriggling his nose like a rat so his glasses jump up and down. He lifts up his hat and runs his fingers through his mouse brown hair, making it stand straight up. However, let's be specific, let's be scientific about it. A human child, no doubt. A young Homo sapiens. You can see now that he's wearing a vest covered with pockets, each with a different label pins, cotton, pencils he reaches into one labelled magnifying glass and motions for you to step forward. Open your mouth and let me see your teeth, child. Why would you want to do that? You ask, shocked. To determine if you are correct, if you are indeed a homo sapiens of a young age. Enough, sir. I don't have any time to waste, you protest. I need to find the druids and I wonder if you could steer me in the right direction. Druids? Druids? No, I can't really help you. Uh, You see, I'm a lepidopterist, not an information centre. He opens up a damp book and unsticks the pages as if your conversation has come to an end. You turn to go, but then your curiosity makes you stop. Professor Quince, you say. What is a lepi... lepidopterist? An entomologist specialising in the study of lepidoptera, he rattles off then raising his head to look at your stunned face he adds a butterfly collector child butterflies and moths in fact here comes one of my catches now a pale green moth with long tails on its wings flutters through the door and lights on the professor's desk sending a delicate puff of dust into the air not much of a specimen is she says the professor wrinkling his rat nose at her Only one antenna, not good enough to be pressed into one of my books. The moth blushes a pale peach colour and lowers her lashes over her golden eyes. But I suppose she's a decent guide. She has a light in that one antenna, you see. Bizarre, isn't it? That sounds very useful to me, you say, seeing that the professor is hurting the moth's feelings. Butterflies are not meant to be useful, he barks. They are meant to be beautiful. Without the beauty of their perfection, they are nothing. He slams the covers of the book together, ending the conversation. The moth darts off into a far corner, her wings trembling, and tries to hide behind a bottle. You've disturbed me enough for one day, child, now be on your way. But wait, please, I have an idea, well, a favour, really, to ask of you. I need a guide to get me through the forest, and I'm sure your moth could be of help. She could take me to the druids, and then I'll send her right back. I promise. The moth peeks out from behind her wing, her eyes glowing. What do you think, Luna? Professor asks. I'm busy with this peacock butterfly, and I would just as soon have you out of my hair for a while. Yes, yes, I'd love to be your guide, Luna says all a flutter. And I know a shortcut to the druid's grove that will get you there in no time. She talks, you exclaim. A strange and disappointing specimen indeed, I told you, grumbles Professor Quince. Well, go ahead and take her, but I need a deposit of five gold pieces to be sure you bring her back. But I don't have five gold pieces. I have no money with me, you protest. Then you will have no lunar moth either, he says, pulling the peacock butterfly from the jar and jabbing it with a pin. And let me tell you this, young Homo sapiens, you will never make it through this forest without help. There are millions of creatures just waiting for a fine specimen like you. I guarantee if you go on alone you will be dead by dawn. You dig into your pocket, searching for something to use as a deposit. You have only one treasure, your magic whistle, which leaves you with two choices. Do you want to leave your golden whistle as a deposit or choose to blow the whistle, hoping it will send you to the Druids? So, an interesting choice. Both choices so far, I think, have been really interesting, particularly with a short-form medium like the Choose Your Own Adventure book, where they do tend to be pretty brief and also the sections tend to be quite long. I think it's even more important to try and come up with choices that feel as though they matter and choices that feel as though something interesting would happen, whichever one you take. It's a pretty strange first encounter as well. Um, having seen a bunch of orcs and a mighty wizard, a Lepidopterist seems like an oddball choice to uh, open the adventure with. But it's not something I was expecting, so it gets bonus points, I guess, for surprising me. Now, in terms of this choice, what are we going to do? I mean, it feels as though the butterfly or the moth is the way to go, so I'm going to leave my golden whistle as a deposit for Luna. Here, you say, handing the professor the golden whistle. Take this. He rubs it delicately between his thumb and forefinger, examining it as if it were a specimen. Where did you get this? This is a wizard's tool, not a child's toy. Exactly, you answer. It belongs to my stepfather, the wizard Alcazar. But it is merely a deposit for your Luna, and I expect you to return it me when I bring her back. Don't worry, I have no time for toys or magic or silly wizardry, he grumbles. He drops the whistle into a desk drawer and goes back to his work on the peacock butterfly, fastening its wings with two strips of paper. Now be off, the two of you, I have important jobs to complete here. The moth flutters to your shoulder and whispers in your ear. You can call me Luna. What's your name? I'm Amina. Okay, Amina, let's go. You head out into the trees, the Luna darting to and fro before you, her antenna glowing like a tiny torch in the darkness of the tree shadows. I bet you're glad to be away from him, aren't you, Luna? You mean Professor Quince? Oh, I don't know. He's been good to me. He keeps me, even though I'm ugly, with my antenna missing and all. Luna, you say. I don't think you're ugly at all. In fact, you add quietly, I think you're beautiful. Okay, this is taking a bit of a turn. Like, I'm not going to question what the author themselves is into, but I am going to say that trying to chat up a moth is a bit weird. I mean, how would that even work? What are you going to do on your first date? You're not going to go bowling with a moth take them out for a nice meal. They only really eat sugar water. Yeah, it's just going to be horrendously awkward to say nothing of the judgment of society when you rock up to the bowling alley or the nice restaurant with a moth as your date. The moth blushes peach and shakes her head. No, no, I'm not even good enough to be one of Professor Quince's specimens. Who cares? Having two antennae is very common. And look where I got all those other butterflies. You're just trying to cheer me up, says Luna, her voice quivering a bit. Not at all, Luna. I really think you're very special. Strange, you mean? You stop short. Come here, and sit on the back of my hand. You tell them off firmly in a tone you learned from Alcazar. Now listen to me. It's Erasmus Quince who's strange, not you. Think of all the things you can do that those other moths never dreamed of. You can talk. You can light up the darkness. You can even make somebody a fine friend. The rest of them just have to settle for being pretty. Luna's blush is now a deep orange, and she flutters her wings bashfully in front of her eyes. You sigh in frustration. Come on now, Luna, let's get on our way. As you set off down the path again... You realise that you are right in the middle of a pine wood so thick with snowy branches that you can't even get through. The treetops are black with crows. Oh no, you moan. What do we do now? Go back the other way? We can't. This is the safest path to the Druids, says Luna. I can fly in and out between the branches, but I'll have to be careful of those crows. But I don't know how you're going to get through, Amina. It looks as though I'll have to chop my way through with my poker. Shine your light over this branch, will you, Luna? You grasp your poker in both hands and hack a snow-covered branch off the nearest fir tree. I'm not convinced you can really hack through branches with a poker. Or if you can, I believe it's going to take a very long time. Out of nowhere comes a tortured bellow like the cry of a great animal in agony. What is that? You whisper your eyes searching the forest for some hidden hairy beast. I can't tell, says Luna. Let's keep going. Slash! Off comes another branch, followed by a low, pain-filled moan. Luna's wings are fluttering excitedly now like a bee's. Oh my gosh, Amina, look! I think you hurt that poor tree. She shines her light on the trunk where the limb broke off, and there you see drops of blood oozing from the wound. I had no idea, you cry, but Luna cuts you off. Amina, the trees are moving in on us. We've got to get out of here. All around you big snowy trees are creeping closer, their branches outstretched and full of crows. You hold your poker across your chest and watch as they move closer, closer, making the forest floor tremble, as if in an earthquake. Amina, what are we going to do? you must make a decision quickly and you have two choices. So uh, there is a picture of Umina fleeing the trees. Again, they've done that thing, which I do appreciate, where the figure could be a young boy, a young girl, could definitely be a young Enby. And I always think that's a worthwhile thing to do if you're going to represent the viewpoint character on screen, which I generally would kind of prefer they didn't. Because while it's great that this youngster could be male, female, or something in between, they are pretty clearly Caucasian. And even though they've made an effort to represent um, a range of characters with the art, it's still going to be kind of exclusionary to some kids to see someone who looks nothing like themselves on screen. As it were, or in represented in the art. Still, on to the choice. So, we can either talk to the trees and hope they understand, or we can run back the way we came. So, let's try talking to the trees. Luna, can you talk to these trees? I don't know their language, but I'll try, she says, lighting on a snowy branch of the bleeding tree. She flashes her little torch on and off. We're sorry we hurt you, she begins there is no reaction the earth rumbles beneath the roots of the firs as they keep moving towards you slowly menacingly we didn't mean to harm you we were just trying to get through at this the wounded tree lets out a long angry groan that sends luna flying off its branch and straight to your shoulder there's just one other chance o'mina she says why don't you put some snow on the wound sometimes cold will take the pain away Luna flutters down and lights up the injury while you carefully press a handful of snow against the tree. I'm sorry, you say. I had no idea you would bleed. I never meant to hurt you. You hear a deep sigh of relief from inside the tree trunk and all the firs suddenly stand very still. A little more snow, Amina, directs the moth like a tiny doctor with wings. That is possibly my favourite simile that i've ever come across what is a moth providing medical assistance like it's like a tiny doctor but with wings that is so bad that it goes straight through bad and comes out the other side again to genius (laughs) i want to try and smuggle in a simile like that into a book now just to see if i can I just want to describe a horse as being like a train with legs. Oh, that has proper delighted me. I'm a sucker for a really, really terrible piece of imagery. It's even nicer when it's a terrible piece of imagery in something that's otherwise very competently written. So I don't feel as though I'm ragging on the author too much because I think she's clearly pretty good at the writing in general, particularly for children. The cold seems to comfort the tree, and soon the bleeding stops and the pines rumble back to their places in the forest, settling their roots in the snowy ground. The wounded tree lets out a long, hollow cry, and right before your eyes all the firs bend their lower branches to the forest floor to make a path in front of you. Why, thank you! you exclaim, hiding your poker under your cloak. That's very nice of you. You head down the road of pine needles the Luna's little torch flickering in the darkness before you. You have barely left the fir trees behind when you come to a fork in the path. Each of the roads is lined with the same thick icy trees. Each winds off into the same mysterious kind of darkness. Which is the shortcut, Luna? The moth points her antenna to the left, hesitating a bit. But I feel something unusual about that path, Amina. It's danger. I feel danger. What kind of danger, Luna? To tell the truth, I'm not sure. Could be goblins, could be spiders, or could be just a few birds looking for a moth to snack on. So maybe it's dangerous for you, but not for me, you ask. Luna nods slowly. How long will it take to get to the druids by the other path? All night, and then some, says the moth. And the path to the left? Just an hour or so, if— you don't run into trouble that is if i hide you in my cloak will you take the shortcut with me you ask no amina i'm too afraid i'd rather wait for you here to return with the mushroom and then we'll go to find alcazar together we must decide which path to take another really great choice i will say that the last choice does a thing that does kind of irritate me And it's very common in choose your own adventure style books, which is where you get given this choice. Do you want to try and talk to the trees? And then the solution turns out to be something completely different once you've talked to the trees. So you can talk to the trees. It doesn't do any good. But then someone else suggests a different course of action. And you do that. And that does work. And that, I think, isn't great design. Because for choices to feel meaningful the consequences of those choices have to apply so I think the smart thing to do would have been to have talking to the trees work you can still get Luna the moth involved in that discussion she can still be really helpful but you want wherever possible for the choice you make to be the one that's consequential not the decision that follows the choice you make anyway we've got a choice to make and they're both really interesting again go alone and take the shortcut or play it safe. Well. I'm kind of sick of doing the Luna voice, to be honest, so even though she seems really nice, I'm going to take the shortcut so I can leave her behind. I'm going to take the shortcut, Luna, you announce. I've got to take the chance. I want to get that mushroom before Alcazar freezes. I'll wait here as long as I can, Amina, says the moth, shivering. But hurry, my wings are frosting over from the cold. You make your way through the woods, the frozen leaves squeaking underfoot as you walk the forest is damp and dark and strange hootings and hissings tell you that you're not alone unseen spirits lurk beyond your vision you feel a presence behind you and you jerk your head around to see nothing nothing but trees and vines and such a sweet puff of pastry creaks a voice right in your ear and all alone in such a big forest You spin around, ready to draw your iron poker, and there stands an old woman with a face as wrinkled as a dried mushroom. See, that's a good, good simile. She is wearing a veil and a gown of black linen, and her eyes are yellow with age. I am Madame Woodroot. Would you care for one of my mushrooms? She hobbles over to a tree stump and slings her shoulder sack down. Big, And little mushrooms spill out onto the frozen ground. There is a picture of Madame Wartroot and yourself. And it's... I mean... uh, Not good. Again, there's bits that are really good. Like there's one hand. One of the elderly lady's hands is great. And the other one is sort of fine. But in absolute terms, this is someone who knows how to draw. It's just, the actual outcome is so much less than the sum of the parts. Yeah, fascinating. This one, she croaks, pinching a soft orange one between her fingernails. This one will give you wealth, great wealth. Just one bite and you'll be richer than a king. You watch her silently, your hand on your iron poker. Nah, it's not riches you are after, is it? Empower is what you want. She digs through her sack and thrusts a green, lumpy mushroom against your chest. "'Here, try this,' she says. "'It'll give you all the power you ever wanted. You can get even with all your enemies, forcing them to their knees to beg your forgiveness.' She lets out a cackle, her mouth wide open and her teeth look like rotted toadstools. "'Again, not bad. You're a witch, aren't you?' you ask boldly. "'I've never seen a witch face-to-face before.' Uh, You are very perceptive for a young thing, she says, pinching your cheek between her wrinkled fingers. You back away, not wanting her to touch you. Yes, I am a witch, but not your ordinary wicked breed of witch. I, my cream puff, am a good witch, the keeper of the three secrets to happiness, wealth, beauty and power. Your eyes, narrow in disbelief, oh i know this old face can be deceiving but i am telling the truth my mushrooms carry great powers watch she insists pointing her crooked finger to make a chair appear out of nowhere now sit down my pudding i have something magical and wonderful to show you she nibbles on a hairy red mushroom the key to beauty she says and soon she is twirling around her apron skirts and sleeves flying about in the air round and around she goes faster and faster until she disappears into a blur just a spinning funnel of black fabric whoosh with a jolt she stops and in her place there stands a most extraordinary sight a slim woman with hair like sunbeams eyes of sapphire skin rich as cream stands before you you see She purrs, her voice as smooth as silk. My diamonds are from the Ardian caves. My gold is mined in the depths of the Slove mountains. And I wear perfume from Grecia. My beauty can buy me anything on earth. That means nothing, you say. Beauty isn't the key to life, and neither are power or riches. Alcazar has always taught me. I know what you intend to say says Madame Wartroot as she arranges the bangles on her wrist. That love and goodness are the secrets to happiness. Exactly! The witch shakes her blonde head, smiling. Poor Alcazar! Look what goodness got him! A free ticket to Warzen's Ice Cavern. How did you know that? He demand. We good witches know many things. And I certainly know that you don't want to end up hanging next to your stepfather like a side of beef. Make Warzen your slave. Make him pay for his cruelty, she says, snatching up a lumpy green mushroom and sticking it under your nose. Eat this mushroom of power, sweet cream, and the whole world will be at your feet. You have two choices. Take a bite, hoping it will give you power over Warzen, or run from the witch and go back to find Luna. Well, I'm going to take a big old bite, and it's not just because I've been recording for about 45 minutes. I just really want to find out what happens. Nothing good, I'm guessing, but we will see. Do you promise me I'll be powerful enough to save Alcazar if I eat this ugly thing? You ask, turning up your nose at the lumpy mushroom i speak nothing but the truth child madame wartroot answers a bit of a croak interrupting her smooth silken voice now here you've got no time to waste on to the glories of power with that she jams the mushroom into your mouth closing your eyes tightly you chew quickly and your mouth is filled with a bitter mouldy taste suddenly the wind is whirling past you like a hurricane and you realise You are spinning, spinning out of control, spinning like a toy top. Another perfectly good simile. Madame Wartroot's cackling laughter rings in your ears as you twirl wildly, the forest racing past you in a blur of green and gold. Then you screech to a stop and collapse to the ground from dizziness. The beautiful woman is gone, and there stands the bent old hag, laughing showing her little toadstool teeth now cream puff we shall call you wart blossom and you shall wander the forest forever giving mushrooms to unhappy travellers Ha! no you can't do this you shout but your voice is not your own it creaks and croaks like the witch's and now you look down to see that your white tunic has changed to black linen you can't do this to me You reach for your poker. It is gone, replaced by a burlap sack stuffed with mushrooms. You snatch it up in your wrinkled hands and swing it at Madame Wurtroot. You'll pay for this, you cruel old hag! The clearing echoes with the witch's cackling, and suddenly, in spite of yourself, you are cackling too. Loud, creaky laughter bursts from your mouth and you sling your mushrooms over your crooked back and cry. Mushrooms, anyone? I hold the key to riches and beauty and power. Great power. The End I was really nicely written, ending there. Very much liked it. Out of the two really classic endless quest books we've covered so far. This one really does feel like the best out of the two. The other one really wasn't that engaging. This one I'm really excited to go back and play through and find out what other possible ends to the quest there are. So I'm going to go and do that and I'll be back for you in just a few moments with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. When I think about Spell of the Winter Wizard, the word that keeps leaping to mind is sweet. The whole book has a charming tone that somehow robs even the most awful endings of horror, and I mean that in a good way. The author has managed to create a fantastical world that feels very welcoming, and although the tone is pitched to a younger age than I typically enjoy, I nonetheless found it a very pleasant book to explore. The ultimate test of a choose-your-own-adventure book is not whether it feels fair or how easy it is to win, but how much you want to go back and explore all the different possibilities. Even when I was hunting down the more obscure endings, it never felt like a chore. There's a lovely set of possible outcomes, which range from different flavours of complete success to different flavours of abject failure, but my favourite is the one where you get to nope out of the whole thing and spend the rest of your life in a vaguely drugged state on a peaceful island. It's the gamebook equivalent of giving up on your hopes and dreams and moving to the Isle of Man. There's a focus on characters more than situations, which I'm starting to think might be a hallmark of the endless quest books in general. It's rare to find yourself on your own in this book. Whichever path you take will lead you to meeting someone sooner or later, usually sooner. It might be the Lepidopterist. Or it might be the alchemist or one of the large number of talking animals that fill this fantastic realm. They all feel very different, and many have been changed or distorted by Warzen's Winter Magic, which provides a constant background reminder of the quest that you're on. It's been a while since we mentioned J.H. Brennan on the podcast, but one of the hallmarks of his work is an inability to keep his work on topic for even a single moment, which is why his Frankenstein book has a genie in a magical castle in it for some reason. J. H. Brennan doesn't lack for imagination, and he's great at pulling out ideas which will appeal to kids, but he's got no discipline whatsoever when it comes to maintaining a coherent theme. Spell of the Winter Wizard has lots of the same traits as a J. H. Brennan book. You'll be meeting some very strange people, but there's a guiding principle behind the encounters which reliably ties them into a backstory that feels fleshed out and present. The Lepidopterist is a good example, He's the sort of weird encounter that would stick out like a sore thumb, except that the author has taken the time to ensure that the cold and snow are always there in your interactions, and if you make certain choices, you'll end up being attacked by warzens, orcs and boars, which keeps that ultimate threat clearly in mind. Like most choose your own adventure books, your actual quest will be very short, and that's something I've come to appreciate more and more as a contrast to the longer forms of interaction I usually tangle with. I think there's something quite appealing in a punk rock way about this kind of approach. It feels weird to be comparing Spell of the Winter Wizard to the Sex Pistols or Misfits, given its warm and welcoming tone, but I think the comparison is apt, because instead of a sprawling epic, you're being given this jolt of adventure that takes you through the whole hero's journey in a handful of pages. It feels like something strangely timely for our time-starved attention economy. Sometimes something where you can have this amazingly quick experience which is filled with enough drama and twists for a full novel but thrown at you with this careless exuberance, that's something that feels entirely refreshing. I think the 2000 AD Diceman gamebook via comic approach to the medium represents the purest distillation of this kind of writing, but it's something that the endless quest books do as well, albeit in a less visceral way. It's making me really look forward to judging the 100-section gamebook competition that Stuart Lloyd is running. There's a real art to making a narrative feel satisfying in such short spaces, and Spell of the Winter Wizard succeeds really well at that. It's maybe a little cosy to linger long in the mind, but in terms of delivering on the promise of a magical adventure, in a snowy wilderness, it succeeds extremely well. It even manages to squeeze in a little character arc for Luna into that oh-so-cramped space, and I found that especially impressive. Working out how to do a lot with a little is a key skill in this kind of design, and Linda Lowry clearly has it. There's something quite pleasant too about the level of weirdness that seems to be ambient in the Endless Quest books we covered. Every choice leads to some kind of bizarre surprise, which I think I would have loved when I was the right age. You've got no idea what might be lurking around the next corner, and I think that's something that kids respond to more than adults, because they're less worried about the connective material of a narrative and just want to get on to the next exciting bit. It's a welcome reminder that my own approach of trying to create worlds that make sense and have an internal logic to them, that works on game books where you're trying to solve puzzles and create a sense of being in control of your destiny but it wouldn't necessarily bear fruit over a shorter distance you don't want 20 sections between big moments when there's so few sections you want every choice to have a really big impact and that can mean sacrificing narrative coherence in favor of doing a whole bunch of weird stuff and that is cool one thing i find interesting about this book is that it feels more like a fairy story than any recognizable dungeons and dragons game You get a few references to orcs, elves, halflings and giants, but they're ultimately little more than window dressing for something that feels more like a conventional children's fantasy story than something with its roots in tabletop gaming. I'm clearly going to have to play more Endless Quest books to see if this is a general pattern, or if there's some books that feel more like they closely resemble the alleged source material. What you find in Spell of the Winter Wizard is a profusion of magic. Almost every encounter is with a magical being. There's the talking moth Luna, there's the witch that did for us, the strange and justifiably angry trees which we saw in our playthrough, but there's plenty more besides. A clam that used to be a sailor, the ghost of a boar keeper, and a talking reindeer that used to be your cat. Now these are all things that you could theoretically find in a game of Dungeons and Dragons, Ghosts exist in Dungeons and Dragons and Polymorph Other is a spell in the game, but they don't feel like the sort of thing you'd find all jammed together in close proximity like this. Perhaps if you played in a game run by Linda Lowry, this would be very much the tone she'd hit, but I'd be a little bit surprised if that was the case. Even if it were, the game is so miserly with power in the early stages that your chances of actually usefully engaging with these high magic elements would be very low. This is one of the things I don't actually care for all that much when it comes to fantasy role playing. I find it quite frustrating running classic fantasy games for characters who just aren't really good at anything. While I get that there's something fun about taking your character up the levels and getting more powerful, I would just prefer to have characters who are already good at things because I know they can be expected to come up with solutions for whatever challenge I throw at them. And while Spell of the Winter Wizard is a fun little experience, I don't think it provides a great introduction to Dungeons and Dragons as a concept. This is something that Warlock of Firetop Mountain actually does much better with its combat system and the focus on exploring a dungeon in search of treasure. I do wonder what a child would make of roleplaying if this had been their introductory text. There's an ending about how violence is not the right way to solve problems, which feels like a terrible lesson to teach people about Dungeons and Dragons, which at this point had systems that almost exclusively focused on how you might go about doing violence to people and things. It's a good lesson for life, sure enough, but one which is strangely disingenuous for a TSR product to be promoting. Now it's true, someone running a D&D game can incentivise their group to behave in any way they like. I think a pacifist role-playing game which didn't have a combat system would be a really interesting experiment. However, If you were to read the D&D manual, you probably wouldn't come away with the message that violence is bad. You'd likely come away with the message that violence is a necessary tool for gaining levels and winning at the game. There would certainly be some cognitive whiplash if you came from a world in which talking moths helped you to treat the injuries of magical trees and discovered that the first order of business was to kick some goblins to death on the basis that their rusty knives represented a vital source of income. The key thing in a choose your own adventure style book is that the choices you get to make feel both reasonable and impactful, and the author has generally done a bang up job of this. There's plenty of things that are heavily signposted, the which is clearly a wrong and as is the ghost of the ballkeeper you come across. There's a good mixture of playing fair with the reader, but also throwing in a few surprises. It possibly airs a little too much on the side of playing fair, there's a lot of places where a good or bad outcome is clearly signposted, but I think that's usually the right side of the divide to fall on. Frustration is almost always more of a problem than predictability. It's also less of a problem with a book where the pleasure lies in experiencing all of the different options, both good and bad. And there's an argument for saying that allowing the player to get to a good ending on the first playthrough helps make the experience of finding all the other endings feel less stressful, especially for younger readers. And as I've repeatedly said, this is something I try and build into my own game book design. I try and make it fairly doable to get to an ending, and then I try and make the best ending much more like hard work. There's one thing in design terms in this book that I think is really clever, and that's the golden whistle. It gives the player an option that can be brought out whenever it's needed, and being magic, it can solve almost any problem. But the fact that the power that the whistle has is never specified means that it can be used as a narrative Swiss army knife to fix any issues which might threaten to take up too much space in the book. What the whistle does is quite context dependent, and the author uses it as her get out of jail free card to move the player from one location to another. It's cleverly written so that each major strand of the plot has one place where the whistle is used, and two of them don't even involve blowing it. With a tight word count to work with, this is a very helpful MacGuffin, and I very much like how it's implemented. She's clearly used it at a couple of points where she hasn't got room to do anything new, but she's also used it in more considered ways in other sections. Even though the whistle clearly does whatever it needs to do to keep the game ticking along, she's obfuscated that fact with real skill, and I doubt younger readers would even notice. If... I'm being critical, there's a few small things and one slightly larger thing, none of which really spoiled my enjoyment of the book. Let's start with a small thing the names. I'm a connoisseur of stupid fantasy names by this point, but this book really does go above and beyond. Amina and Alcazar are perfectly adequate, but we are soon being told that we would do well to find Cryon, the wizard of Yonbluff which are both almost Jack Vance levels of stupid naming conventions. Then you meet Gluteus T. Argonimus, a name that is incredibly stupid and also clearly just made by slapping together the somewhat exotic words Gluteus and Argon in a vaguely fantastical and cod Roman way. What kind of desperate hack would stoop so low, I ask myself. Then I hide. I also don't think the art is very good, and it's frustrating because although I hate every single illustration, at the same time there's something that I like in almost every illustration as well. The animals are generally pretty good, the backgrounds generally pretty adequate, and the humanoid characters generally comically bad. It manages to be just the wrong kind of cartoonish exaggeration to land for me. The art has a way of trivialising the action rather than elevating it, if that makes any sense. Obviously art is subjective, but for me it reminds me of Jules Pfeiffer's work on the Phantom Tallbooth, but without the same sense of liveliness which made that book really sing. It doesn't feel stylized so much as lazy and incompetent. My one substantive criticism is that the resolution of encounters often feels like it relies on other, more powerful people helping the main character. When it gets to the various climaxes, you're going to be watching while other people get to do the cool thing. And even if they're doing the cool thing at your behest, it's not quite the power fantasy that interactive fiction usually excels at. It makes you a bystander at the most critical juncture of the narrative. It's not a huge issue. Those big set pieces still work, but it would have been even better if the author had found a way to make you central to the action right when it gets the most exciting. Go and find a grown-up to help you might be good advice to children in real life, but this is fantasy where the normal rules are supposed to be suspended. It makes the narrative feel a little bit conservative when it could have been more expansive. It doesn't spoil the action by any means, but it does give it a vague feeling that you're a very well-behaved and responsible child, which is hardly the most thrilling character to inhabit. When I think of really brilliant child protagonists, my mind immediately goes to William from Richmale Crompton's Just William stories, and the defiantly anti-heroic Billy Bunter from the Greyfriars stories, and Those feel to me much more interesting than someone who just behaves themselves and always does the right thing. So that's Spell of the Winter Wizard, a charming little adventure, and thanks once again to Daniel for suggesting it. We're back on the Fighting Fantasy Train next episode as we look at Book 44 in the series The Keep of the Lich Lord. I hope you'll join me for that. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at hjdoomretrofun or oneword at gmail.com. Or follow me on Bluesky at HJ Doom. Thank you very much for listening, take care, and I'll see you soon.